When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Even for those who hew to the Old Testament, the topic of the Israelites and their relationship to Yahweh is not exactly straightforward. To start with one of the basics, the very name Israel, given to Jacob by the angel with whom he wrestled. The term likely derives from Yisra, to struggle with, and El, the name of the supreme god of the Canaanite pantheon, and clearly not Yahweh. Which isn't to suggest that the ancient Israelites weren't Yahweh worshippers, But it does suggest that doing so was the end of a process, one that began with worship of the many gods and goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon and ended with a central, even exclusive, focus on Yahweh. Unsurprisingly, Yahweh's origins are also shrouded in mystery. The gods first mentioned in a 14th century BC inscription from the reign of Amenhotep III which refers to the Shasu of Yahweh. Since the Shasu were nomads from Edom and northern Arabia, it's likely that Yahweh hailed from these regions. And it's still unclear exactly how his worship spread north into the Levant. But however it occurred, Yahweh was eventually adopted into the Canaanite pantheon as one of the seventy sons of the supreme god El and his divine consort, Asherah. According to historian Joanne Hackett, in the earliest biblical literature, Yahweh is a storm god typical of ancient Near Eastern myths. Marching out from a region to the south or southeast of Israel with a heavenly host of stars and planets that make up his army to do battle with the enemies of his people, Israel. As far as who the Israelites actually were, historian Mark Smith notes that while the biblical account draws a clear distinction between Israelites and Canaanites in this period, The modern consensus is that there was no distinction in language or material culture between these groups. And some scholars accordingly define Israelite culture as a subset of Canaanite culture. While the majority of Israelites were likely Canaanites, it's possible that other nomadic groups, such as the Shasu or Habiru, may have joined their confederation. 
In fact, the terms habiru and Hebrew may even be related. At the time of our story, the latter half of the 11th century BC, the Israelites were still at least semi-nomadic and controlled no major cities, though they did have a number of cult centers. Historian William Deaver notes that the earliest known Israelite place of worship is a 12th century BC open-air altar in the hills of Samaria featuring a bronze bull reminiscent of the Canaanite bull El, or El in the form of a bull. The remains of further temples have also been found at Dan, in the Negev, and at Beersheba. Historian Harold Bennett notes that Shiloh, Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, Ramah, and Dan were also major early sites for Israelite festivals, sacrifices, vow-making, private rituals, and the adjudication of legal disputes. The contemporary Israelites worshipped many gods, including El, Asherah, Baal, and Shamash all of whom had dedicated priests and prophets. Eventually, over time, the worship of El was syncretized with the worship of Yahweh as a single supreme divinity. But historian John Mackenzie notes that even then, instead of believing that Yahweh was the only God, they began to believe that he was the only God that the people of Israel should worship. It was only centuries later in response to devastating Assyrian and Babylonian attacks, that the Israelites began denying the existence of other gods and became truly monotheistic. The biblical parallel to the time of our story is what's known as the Judges period, with Joshua leading the Israelites to conquer various cities and territories in Canaan. Much of the story including the famous conquest of Jericho, is completely at odds with the archaeology. But historian Paula McNutt notes that the period did see a drastic increase in both the number of highland villages and the settled highland population, which could certainly lead to a desire for expansion. At the same time, the local neighborhood was far from vacant. The coastal regions to the north and south were home to the Phoenicians and Philistines, respectively, while inland regions were populated by other Canaanite Semitic peoples, conventionally known as the Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites. The territory of Edom, which lay between the southern shores of the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba, had a long association with both Sutu and Shasu nomads. While the Sutu, or Sutians, frequently raided into Mesopotamia, the Shasu were considered a constant threat by the pharaohs of New Kingdom Egypt. Though the Bible names several contemporary rulers, there's no archaeological evidence for a kingdom of Edom for at least the next few centuries. But it's also true that the Edomites of the era were largely nomadic, and even if they had a king, he wouldn't have necessarily left the same traces, like monumental architecture, as the kings who ruled from cities. 
In a recent article, journalist Matty Friedman discusses excavations conducted by archaeologist Erez Ben Yosef at the site of Timna in the Arava Desert, located in Edomite territory. The site's been described as the largest and richest copper mining and smelting center in the entire region and includes some 9,000 vertical shafts sunk into the ground. According to Ben Yosef, a mining expedition from Egypt came first, leaving behind a few hieroglyphic inscriptions and erecting a local temple. But the mines actually became most active after the Egyptians left, during the power vacuum created by the collapse of the regional empires. The main period of activity at the site has been carbon dated to around 1000 BC, within a few decades of the time of our story. In fact, according to archaeologist Shirley Bendor Evian, the Areva region, including Timna, was very likely the sole provider of copper to Egypt during the 11th and 10th centuries. Despite the absence of any permanent structures, the mining operation at Timna reveals the workings of a highly sophisticated society. A key discovery, also dated to around 1000 BC, is a remnant of cloth dyed royal purple, perhaps from contemporary Phoenicia. Again, the Edomites of the period were largely nomadic, moving with the seasons, preferring tents to permanent homes, and rendering themselves archaeologically invisible. The only reason we know they had an advanced society is that they happened to control a major copper deposit, which forced them to occasionally settle down for a bit. Historian Laura Zacconi suggests that Edomite political power was based not on control of any centralized location, but on control over resources and trade routes, with elite power measured by the nature and volume of goods they were able to move. She also notes that, like the Habiru and possibly the Israelites, ethnicity was not necessarily a significant marker. According to historian Sarah Malena, the nearby copper production site at Fainan also shows evidence of great complexity and enormous wealth. The Fainan site was clearly integrated into a rich and extensive trade network, as reflected by the presence of imported and luxury goods. At the same time, like Timna, there's zero evidence of any kind of centralized, non-local control. Malena argues that, given the context, we should be looking for elites instead of kings, and for resource control instead of centralization. The nomad paradigm is a lot to digest, but the larger implications are very interesting. Again, quoting from the Timna article, Biblical skeptics point out that there are no significant structures corresponding to the time of the proposed united monarchy of Israel. But one plausible explanation could be that most Israelites simply lived in tents, because they were largely a nation of nomads. In fact, that's how the Bible describes them, as a tribal alliance moving out of the desert and into the land of Canaan 
settling down only over time. These Israelites could have been wealthy, organized, and semi-nomadic, just like the formerly invisible Edomites. In the same article, archaeologist Aaron Meyer sounds a reasonable note of caution, stating that even if a united Israelite monarchy did exist, it was clearly much smaller than advertised. Quote, there's simply no evidence of a large kingdom on any level, not just the level of architecture. To me, it's all just really interesting research, and suggests some intriguing possibilities for the nature of at least some early Iron Age states. Before we leave the subject of mines, there's another topic worth discussing. One technological development that's commonly associated with the formation of early Iron Age states is access to, well, iron, for weapons and armor. But the evidence we have shows that this wasn't necessarily the case. We noted a few episodes back that Anatolian metalsmiths had been experimenting with iron since the Middle Bronze Age. But the more relevant question, at least for us, is when did iron achieve widespread use? According to historian Nathaniel Erbsatulo, the earliest local site with evidence of ironsmithing is Tel Tayanat in southeastern Turkey, and has been dated to the 12th or 11th centuries BC. Another ironsmithing workshop was identified at Phokaya, on the Aegean coast of Anatolia, and dated to the 11th century BC. But in general, Herb Satulo notes that there's no substantial evidence of iron smelting, such as furnaces or slag, in the Middle East prior to 1000 BC. It's only during what's called the Iron 2A period the 10th and 9th centuries BC, that the use of iron significantly expanded, with evidence of an increasing number of iron artifacts and iron production debris across a number of Levantine sites, including Megiddo, Tel Asafi, and Tel Hama. Tel Hama in central Jordan is a particularly interesting case. The sites described as the most complete assemblage of iron smelting debris in the Levant, and has been radiocarbon dated to the 10th or 9th century BC. It also bears a striking resemblance to the Edomite copper mine we just discussed. In both cases, there's little evidence of permanent settlement, and it appears that metal smelting was carried out seasonally possibly by nomads without strong ties to any particular local elite. Herb Satulo notes that the evidence suggests that bronze-working and iron-working traditions were closely intertwined, and it's quite possible that the same craftspeople were involved in working both metals. He also cites the contemporary expansion of the Edomite copper mine at Timna, as well as increased copper production on the island of Cyprus, to show that copper and bronze were still in circulation, despite the difficulty of obtaining tin in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse. Rather than a stark swap-over between the two metals, Herb Satulo suggests that 
In some areas, iron initially may have served less as a replacement for bronze and more as an addition to an expanding metal economy. All of which suggests that the weapons and armor being used to forge and defend the new Iron Age kingdoms were likely just as bronze as before the collapse. The highlands east of the Dead Sea and north of Edom were home to a people called the Moabites. The name goes back to at least Ramesses II, who listed the Mu'ab among a series of peoples conquered in a northern campaign. A monument recovered near Karak, Jordan, the Al-Balu Stele, dates to sometime between the late 14th and mid-12th centuries B.C and appears to depict a Moabite king standing before two deities. Between that stele and the immensely critical stele of King Mesha, dated to around 840 BC, the historical record is mostly silent, apart from the biblical narrative. In a recent paper, Erez ben Yosef, The same archaeologist from the Timna excavations discusses the case of Moab. Traditionally, monumental construction at different Moabite sites have been correlated with the rise and fall of various Moabite dynasties. But Ben Yosef proposes a different framework. That the Moabites like other local semi-nomadic groups, moved easily along a nomadic sedentary continuum. In other words, they could transition to a more or less settled state based on the local environmental, political, and socioeconomic conditions. In this framework, increased monumentality, like the building of fortifications, might just represent a need for protection during a period of instability. More generally, he proposes that common reconstructions of emergence and collapse are, in fact, oscillations in the archaeological visibility of nomadic societies, which do not necessarily correlate to an increase or decline in social complexity. He also suggests that Moab, in the period leading up to King Mesha, likely fits the nomad model much better than the sedentary model. The territory north of Moab and east of the Jordan was home to a people known as the Ammonites, whose ancient capital of Raboth Ammon still endures as the Jordanian capital of Ammon. Like Edom and Moab, it's hard to say whether the Ammonites of the late 11th century BC were actually ruled by a king. In fact, it isn't until around 850 BC, the same rough time frame as the Mesha Stele, that we have non-biblical evidence of Ammonite kingship. But the significant role they're accorded in the Bible is worth a bit of discussion. In the biblical narrative, An Ammonite king named Nahash lays siege to a city called Jabesh-Gilead in territory claimed by the Israelites. Nahash threatens the city's occupants with slavery and mutilation, and in their desperation, the besieged Israelites send out an urgent plea for help. In this era, the biblical Israelites are ruled by judges 
a series of non-elected, non-hereditary military leaders. But in the narrative, they'd recently taken a step toward their neighbors and selected a man named Saul to be their king. So Saul gathers the Israelites, marches on Jabesh-Gilead, defeats King Nahash, and drives him off east, after which Saul is formally crowned as king of the Israelites. This is the origin story of the United Israelite Monarchy, and, in the Bible at least, the beginning of the formation of an Israelite regional empire. In the narrative, Saul follows up his victory with campaigns against the Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, and the Amalekites, a tribe likely based in the Negev Desert. To the north, Saul also wars against an Aramean kingdom called Bet-Rehob or Aram-Zobah. While most of his campaigns meet with success, Saul's greatest challenge is the Philistines, the former Mycenaean Greeks, who dominate the southern coastal territory adjacent to Egypt, known as the Philistine Pentapolis. An interesting side note in the biblical narrative highlighted by historian Chris McKinney, is that the Israelites are portrayed as having zero knowledge of metalworking, making them entirely dependent on Philistine metalsmiths to fashion their swords and spears. After winning an early David and Goliath-style victory against the Philistines, Saul begins campaigning against the Amalekites, giving the Philistines time to regroup. It's during this period that Saul is introduced to a young musician named David, whom he appoints to be his armor-bearer. And the next time they face the Philistines in battle, Saul orders David to face their enormous champion, Goliath, in single combat. David legendarily defeats Goliath with a single shot from his sling, a lopsided victory that, wait, I know there's a perfect term for that. Sorry, I can't think of it now. It'll come to me. In the narrative, tensions begin mounting between King Saul and the increasingly popular David. After Saul attempts to murder David, the latter flees with a small war band into the local mountains. The two eventually reconcile, but... In the next major battle against the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, Saul is defeated and either kills himself or is killed by the enemy. The Philistines famously seal their victory by decapitating Saul and three of his sons, then putting the king's sword, armor, and head on display in the temple of Astarte in Ashkelon. After a brief period of civil war, David is acknowledged as Israelite king. And one of his first recorded acts, at least in the Bible, is to conquer the city of Jerusalem. The city was a Bronze Age Canaanite foundation and had originally been named after Shalem, the Canaanite god of dusk and the evening star. As god of dusk, Shalem was associated with the peace of returning to one's family at the end of the workday, which is why the god's name is the origin of the word for peace, shalom or salam, in the Hebrew and Arabic languages. 
The city is first mentioned in Egyptian correspondence from the latter half of the 14th century BC. According to historian Israel Finkelstein, at the time, Jerusalem was a modest settlement, governing a few outlying villages and pastoral areas. One of the city's better-known mayors was Abdi Heba, named after the Hurrian mother goddess Hepat, who apparently received military training in Egypt prior to assuming his post. Finkelstein notes that the area Abdi Heba administered may have had a population of 1,500 people, and Jerusalem itself had no fortifications or even large buildings. The mayor's military training came in handy, as the region was plagued by Canaanite warlords and roaming bands of Habiru. Not much is known about Jerusalem following Egypt's general withdrawal from the region in the late 12th century BC. But at some point, under David or otherwise, the city was conquered and occupied by the Israelites and would eventually become capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Like Saul, the biblical King David is credited with victories over the Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, Amalekites, and the Aramean kingdom of Soba, upon which he was supposedly congratulated by the king of neighboring Hamath. Archaeology shows that Hamath was home to a kingdom that dated to roughly this period. Bryce notes that the contemporary city held a temple to the goddess Balat and a complex of large public buildings surrounding an open courtyard and accessed via a fortified monumental gateway. Lion sculptures of the Hittite type flank the entrances and staircases of several buildings. David's most consequential victories were supposedly won over the Philistines, whom the Bible claims he broke and reduced to vassalage. Archaeology performed at the Philistine city of Ekron records its violent destruction and subsequent abandonment in the early 10th century BC, correlating to the supposed time frame of David's rule. And, considering our subject, I'd be remiss if I didn't note the biblical story of the Hittite, or more properly, Neo-Hittite, soldier Uriah, one of David's senior commanders whom the king sent off to his death after impregnating his wife, Bathsheba. As Bryce notes, the story is the reason that Uriah the Hittite is much better known than Supaluliuma the Hittite. As we've seen, the biblical narrative references some peoples and places that accord with the contemporary Syrian landscape. But I need to caveat that there's currently not a single shred of archaeological evidence for the existence of the biblical King Saul. For David, there's some potential evidence. Depending on who's doing the reading, two 9th century BC stelae, the Meshistele and another from Tel Dan may refer to the ruling dynasty of Judah as the House of David. But, as I've also noted, nomadic kingdoms like early Israel may not have left much of an archaeological footprint. 
So absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Next episode, we'll carry the story forward into the 10th century BC and explore the major Iron Age kingdoms taking shape in contemporary Syria. We'll also witness the violent return of a former Bronze Age power as the pharaoh Siamun turns his eye toward the cities of the southern Levant. <laughs> 